Hello, I'm Michael Peregrine, partner at McDermott Will and Emery, and welcome to the second in a series of McDermott Kaufman Hall podcast for healthcare boards entitled Surviving Disruption, a Roadmap for Healthcare Governance. Our previous podcast examined the signs of disruption in industry generally and for healthcare in particular. In this, the second in our three-part series, we turn to the responsive strategies that healthcare organizations can adopt. I'm joined again by Ken Kaufman, chair of Kaufman Hall. Welcome, Ken. Thank you, Michael. Ken, you're in the boardroom. The audience is paying attention. What's your recommendation on step one for a healthcare system or any kind of healthcare company to start responding or being aware of the onrush of business disruption? Well, I think what we've noticed is that is that attitude is the most important first step. You, you can't really accept the changes that are going on if you don't have the attitude that you're going to accept the changes that are going on. And that, that's, that sounds like, you know, people are saying, Ken, that's kind of a weird thing to say. But it is. You can see people go through great efforts from a strategy and planning perspective, and it isn't really going anywhere because they don't really believe in the process. They don't believe in the change process. They're not ready to change. They don't want to change. One of the most powerful things, and Clay Christensen has pointed this out so well, uh, in our economy is an existing business model. For our board members and our senior management team and our senior doctors, there are many people in that group who are who are absolutely committed to the existing business model. And they don't see how you could function as a healthcare organization with a new business model. They could only see how you would function with the existing business model. And therefore, you're not really ready to move out. Uh, well, how do you change that? How do you change that perspective? And especially if these are very bright, very accomplished individuals, how do you get them off the dime? Well, I think the real the leadership really comes in that case from the CEO. The CEO wants his or her organization to change. In other words, he and, and he really feels that way. And he evolves, he moves forward on, on a series of strategies and steps that include board education or management education, discussion of different ways of doing business, ways of looking at the technological world, what's going on, what mistakes other organizations have made, and just creates a platform where the organization can move forward and that change can take hold. Can you draw some analogies when you're preaching to a board, you're discussing with this with the board, can you draw some helpful analogies to the way some healthcare systems are addressing technology on the periphery? Uh, can you kind of connect the dots, whether it's telemedicine or other aspects of the di of digital technology, and, and, and connect those for board members? Well, I don't, I, I think, you know, everybody asks, who can I call? I mean, it's really yeah. amazing. It's who, who, who can I call? Who's doing this? And I think the fact of the matter is that nobody's really doing it in a holistic sense yet within healthcare. Lots of organizations have all sorts of experiments going on, trying all sorts of different things with digital and telehealth and, and other kinds of technology, trying to push technology into that care process system. But nobody's actually come up with, this is how we're going to provide care. This is how technology is going to contribute to this. And this is going to be our new way of going forward. It has not happened yet. Can we extrapolate from the way we expect the Silicon Valley disruptors to enter the market and draw some analogies there on how we might change services? Again, you know, it's getting that 
digital enterprise into your overall enterprise. You know, a, a great first start is, is having electronic scheduling. But it has to be good electronic scheduling. And I would encourage anybody who's listening to this, if they have electronic scheduling in their own healthcare system, go on and try to make an appointment and see how you feel about that. See if it's good digital work. How many clicks does it take? Did it work? Did you actually get the appointment? Were you sure you got the appointment? And then, you know, go on, buy a book on Amazon and see how many clicks it took to do that and how that interaction was and then compare the interaction. So this is really like you were talking about in our first episode. Where will the healthcare consumer encounter friction in his or her experience with the provider? Exactly. And beyond scheduling, what are some other examples? Oh, well, it's, you know, what happens when you come for the appointment? How is the appointment handled? How quickly do you get in to see the doctor? How long do you have to wait? Because we have a whole group of consumers in America who don't wait anymore. They don't. In-store purchasing for this Christmas for Black Friday was down 4%. And purchases from a mobile perspective were up 18%. I mean, that's really the only statistic you need to know is that we, we have an enormous consumer base in the United States that isn't going to suffer for inconvenience um, when it is so able in its other parts of its economic experience to have gotten away from that inconvenience. I'm thinking of the chief financial officer listening in right now and saying, I don't have the funds to develop an entire new data delivery system or data acquisition uh, system. How can I, in a reasonable cost basis, develop this information about consumer preferences? How can I try and compete with uh, information on what the consumer needs, where the friction? Well, we're going to need we're going to need partnerships. It's unrealistic to expect a 500-bed hospital to be able to do this. It's, they can't hire enough coders. They, can't, they don't know what they're doing. Um, so we are going to need partnerships. Uh, you know, and we're beginning to see examples. We don't know how they'll work yet, but uh, University of Pittsburgh Medical Center just announced that they're going to build three specialty hospitals um, by 2021, and those, part, those hospitals are going to be built in partnership with Microsoft. So UPMC will build the hospitals and Microsoft will provide all of the technology and digitization to make this a completely different healthcare experience. That's what UPMC hopes. We'll see whether it works or not. But that gives you an idea. Even UPMC, which is a $15 billion organization, which is a very large healthcare delivery system in the United States, knows that it needs to find a partnership in order to make this go quickly and most effectively. Do you see those partnerships available to the billion-dollar health systems? Uh, or is, are we talking about a question well, of scale? Yeah. So now we should probably talk about scale. Yeah. Um, and so we still have 5,200 hospitals in the United States. We don't need 5,200 hospitals. We just don't. Will you talk to the antitrust authorities about that? I've Sorry. tried. I tried. I've been in Washington to testify, uh, and uh, I wasn't any more effective than you guys. So we have 5,200 hospitals. We don't need 5,200 hospitals, um, and we need much larger provider organizations. So if, if we want to, to make the the critical comparisons, United Healthcare, which is now an integrated healthcare insurance and services provider, um, as well as actually a healthcare provider, is a $185 billion organization. 
Uh, Kaiser is our largest not-for-profit healthcare system in the United States at about $50 billion. And then after that, it drops down very quickly. So in order to deal with the resource requirements that you and I have been talking about, we're going to need much larger provider organizations. There's simply no way around it. One of the ongoing dynamics, and this deals with scale, is the ability of the, some of the smaller, even though they're, they're large, but smaller in, in comparison, uh, nonprofit health systems to acquire the talent, to develop the database, to develop the intellectual capital. And we're seeing right now a climate in Washington which is less than enthralled with the way the tax exempts spend their money and use their tax exemption. Uh, are there policy issues here? How does the tax exempt sector acquire or compete for intellectual capital and, and talent development. You know, where is this going, right? There is an attack. They're, they're in the tax law, they want to take tax-exempt financing away from not-for-profit hospitals. There's this amazing part of the tax law that, that is going to excise tax on on executive salaries. Um, it's, it's sort of an all-out, somebody in Washington decided, you know, we, we, we don't like not-for-profit health care, and, and we're not going to reward it anymore, and we're not going to provide artificial support for it. And so where this goes may require not-for-profit organizations to really th rethink how they do business. I wouldn't be surprised at all if some not-for-profits are saying, if this all goes through, maybe we'll convert to a for-profit. Well, that's another level of business disruption. Or, or maybe we'll create a, a, you know, a for-profit subsidiary and begin to move most of our activity into the for-profit subsidiary and use the not-for-profit only as a holding company or something along those lines. A lot of the issues that you've discussed in our series to date have focused on acquisition of talent and it would, would suggest spending up to meet the challenge. Yet many of the organizations that you and I both represent are constantly focused on how to reduce cost. How do we, how do we match the challenge of addressing business disruption while still keeping a lid on costs? Yeah, so, you know, I mean, the most amazing thing about the Internet economy is you have to do two different things at the same time all the time. That's what the Internet economy has made organizations do. And that's why so many organizations have failed. So for healthcare organizations, they do have to reduce costs. The costs are much higher than, than they can tolerate going forward. But at the same time, they have to be making investments in different directions. So to do that is a very, very significant management challenge, but it's absolutely required to survive in this environment. Where do you cut? The answer to that is everywhere. You really have to start with the big things, and that is how, do you, how you provide care. So it isn't a matter, there isn't any way of, of getting costs down low enough simply by eliminating nurses or eliminating people who work in dietary or eliminating the people who help clean the hospital. There's not, there's not going to be enough cost there. What you have to say is, is the, way the, the way the costs are built in our country is the way that we deliver care. And if we, don't, if we don't change the care design and care delivery system, then there isn't any way we can possibly take uh, the amount of money out of the system that we need to. And then, you know, the whole notion of how many hospitals do you have? If you have a hospital system with 20 hospitals, you know, would they be better off with 15? Uh, because if they close five hospitals, then you're actually really taking money out. You're not putting it back in. Um, and then looking at the whole physical facility setup of your system, 
Um, how many how many outpatient units do you have? Are they too many? Are they in the wrong places? Uh, all of that is really the attack strategies for getting costs out. We're going to talk a little bit more about this in our last podcast, but you know, I'm looking at the average healthcare director who commits his or her time to the support of the health system, enjoys it, and feels that he or she's making a difference. But this has got to be overwhelming to that person. Uh, there's got to be a concern that, you know, what can I do? How do, do I have the skill set? What is your, your core recommendation to how governance can play a role in supporting management in responding to all this? Is it overwhelming? Is it a role for the board? What can they, what, what's your, your fundamental recommendation that they can serve in moving this forward? Well, it is overwhelming, but we've never been in a spot in not-for-profit health care where the boards are more important. I, I see in many cases a lot of boards sort of sort of just saying to the CEO, you take it from here. Isn't that the logical, we're out of this, you're, it's your ball, you run with it? Yeah, it is logical, but it's not the right answer. It's because a healthcare system trying to fight back and trying to figure out where it goes needs as many great heads as it possibly can. And many organizations have really good boards. And for their boards to check out right at this point, you know, comes close to fiduciary malpractice right now because because you you weren't necessarily put on the board for the easy things. You were put on the board for the hard things. And we're in a very hard place right now. Um, so to me, the board has to try as hard as it can and work in a true partnership well, with that management. Was, you know, that's the phrase that people use. And sometimes uh, at my end of the uh, spectrum, folks are saying, well, the board can't be in partner with management. They have to be adversarial with management or be in exercise constructive skepticism. But this is all in right but, now. But there's... but. But but I see constructive skepticism as the part of the partnership. I, I don't see them as opposites at all. So when, when you're in the boardroom and you know you're you're comfortable with the things that are being said and you're comfortable with the investments being made, and and you answer those questions in that in that way and you vote in in that way, that's fine. But when something comes up where you think that the strategic direction of the organization is really challenged and nobody has come up. With, with, with really a quality answer as to how to deal with that, then as a board member, you really need to step up and ask a lot more questions and, and have a lot more observations. It's really about let's huddle up now and figure this all out together. Abs absolutely. But we're going to talk about that. Stay tuned. We'll talk about that more in our third series. Perfect. Thanks, Ken. The views, opinions, and positions expressed in this podcast are those of Michael Peregrine and Ken Kaufman and do not necessarily represent or reflect the views of McDermott, Will, and Emery. These podcasts have been prepared by McDermott, Will & Emery for informational purposes only and do not constitute legal advice.